Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. This is the first of a two-part series on Football for Future, a team of climate experts promoting environmental sustainability in English football. David Goldblatt is the chief advisor for the non-profit and is a writer, documentary filmmaker and football historian. He's written three books on football, The Game of Our Lives, which won the 2015 William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award, The Age of Football, The Global Game in the 21st Century, and The Ball is Round, A Global History of Soccer. David is a regular columnist for The Guardian with exposés on Newcastle United, the Euros and prison football in Uganda. And what follows today is a perfect listen for any A-level geographer studying changing places and or how sport can add to shaping places and spaces. David, thanks for joining us today. Um, To start with, what are the links between geography and football? Well, there's a question. Um, I think there are many. I think the first thing to say is, you know, football certainly is a professional game. It's all about neighbourhoods and localities and cities. If you think about the way the um, final scores, the classified results on a Saturday afternoon being read out of the 92 English Football League clubs... I mean, it's a geographical litany of the nation, one of which, of course, of which is biased towards the geography of industrial Victorian England, but nonetheless a kind of extraordinary litany of the townscape and cityscapes of England. So at that level, of course, it's, you know, it's completely connected to, uh, to geography and identities around football clubs are intensely geographical. I mean, and sometimes it's just a neighbourhood of a city. Sometimes it's a whole city. Sometimes two clubs are contesting the identity of a space. So geography is at the uh, the heart of identity in football. Football stadiums themselves are kind of important geographical markers. You know, people understand and shape their cities around the location of football stadiums. And the experience of going to football, I would say, is uh, has a very strong geographical dimension in the sense that going to football for most people is a kind of ritual. And what makes it a ritual and what gives it that quality is about the routes that you take. And you take the same route and you walk down the same streets and you stand in the same places. And that sense of being in a city and being in space as part of the football experience is really central to most people. So football as a kind of social phenomena is intensely, has this sort of intensely, I would say, geographical and spatial element. You've mentioned a lot about locality there and neighbourhoods. It's also a global game with financial flows. Um, Newcastle United's fortunes have changed, for example, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, it's financial flows and it's human flows, I would say. In the last 30 years, a game that was certainly in its professional form, overwhelmingly national, has become either regional or global um, in terms of tournaments that clubs are playing in, the ownership um, of football clubs and the movement of football players and coaches. And England and the English Premier League is the most globalised of all uh, football leagues in the world. 75% of its players are from outside of England. The majority of coaches now in the Premier League are from outside England and their backroom staff. And the majority of owners in the Premier League are from outside of England. 
Uh, and it's an extraordinary range. I mean, in, just in terms of ownership, we have Abu Dhabi, the Royal House of Abu Dhabi own Manchester City. Um, Arsenal is owned by Stan Kroenke, inheritor of much of the Walmart fortune from the United States, and the Glazers um, are from the United States. They own Manchester United, Fenway Sports own Liverpool. Until recently, Abramovich um, from Russia owned Chelsea, now sold, sold to another American billionaire. Leicester City is owned by one of the richest men in Thailand. One could go on. So Saudi, the arrival of Saudi Arabia at Newcastle United, in a way, is not surprising. Uh, and the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Fund bought the club from billionaire retailer Mike Ashley. And that has transformed certainly its financial fortunes. It looks like it's just beginning to change its sporting fortunes. And it's also, I think, changed its kind of cultural fortunes. I mean, Newcastle United has been a byword for authentic industrial working class football, even in an era of high commercialism. Newcastle United has retained uh, some of that kind of I would call it stardust of an old era that still stands for what authentic football is about. And the arrival of Saudi Arabian money, I think it's a dilemma. You know, Newcastle United were at one point sort of everybody's favourite second team, certainly during the Keegan era, but other eras, people have a soft spot. And now they are linked to an international political project on behalf of what is undoubtedly a highly authoritarian state with a very troubling human rights record. So that's a pretty big clash going on there. So it will be interesting to see how fans and clubs handle this dilemma. How has football benefited from globalisation and is the current model of, of huge investment for Premiership football sustainable? I laugh when I hear the word investment. People love to say investment because investment's always good. You know, Roman Abramovich's 1.5 billion investment in Chelsea is actually soft loans to cover losses on uh, an absurd wage bill. So, you know, yeah, he's invested in kind of uh, the people who are selling Bentleys and, uh, and Ferraris for sure, because a lot of money's been spent on those out of those wages. But the idea that this is kind of meaningful investment in plant or machinery or kind of structures that has a kind of productivity consequence, like, no way, this is complete nonsense. So, um, you know, what the money that foreign billionaires and indeed local billionaires have put into the uh, Premier League is primarily, it's all about paying, you know, hugely inflated wages to players. Of course, that means that the football in the Premier League is of a different calibre to pretty much everywhere in the world. I mean, when you have such an extraordinary concentration of talent, then, you know, obviously you're just going to get amazing football. Uh, and that's been even more so since so many foreign coaches have come here, starting with Wenger at Arsenal in the mid-1990s, but over the last 20 years, you know, the calibre and seriousness of coaching and facilities and everything 
um, has been enormous. So that's really made a difference. But like, is this investment? I mean, that sort of sounds like somebody's actually thinking economically rationally and is planning to make a profit. The Premier League has lost money over the last 30 years. If you look at taxes and, you know, amortization and the rest of it, the bottom line is that the thing loses money. Nobody's earning money. I mean, sure, you can sell it on to the next biggest fool who buys it as a trophy. But, you know, people have other agendas. Roman Abramovich had $12 billion. What, he bought Chelsea to increase his wealth? Like, this is the height of political naivety. You know, that was part of a wider political project to extract himself and his money from uh, Putin's Russia and establish himself outside of it. You know, like, obviously, Abu Dhabi at Manchester City, please, these people, this is a nation state. It's not buying a football club to make money. I think, you know, what's been going on, sure, the foreign money has made some impact around the edges. But, you know, the core of the business is the incredible global TV income. I mean, that's what makes the premiership rich is, you know, for some clubs, 70, 80% of their income is TV money. It's bringing in twice, at least twice what La Liga brings in in Spain, the next most popular global sort of, you know, TV phenomena in football. And the foreign presence, I mean, sure, it's certainly distorted competition. And one can think about questions of competitive balance. But the television money, that's what's pumping through the arteries of the Premier League. And when you combine that with the super globalization of players and coaches and, above all, the caliber and quality and nature of the English crowd, because that's also what people love around the world. You know, the crowds are either quiescent or incomprehensible in most European leagues in uh, the global market. I mean, Italy is full of, you know, extraordinary ultras with their TIFOs and their banners, but it's incomprehensible and meaningless to most of the world, you know, unless you've got a PhD in ultra studies. Whereas um, in England, the stadiums are full. I mean, they really are full. We're like 99% capacity a lot of the time in the Premier League. They're designed uh, in such a way that the spectacle is very intense because you have everybody close to the pitch, you know, no athletics tracks, none of that stuff. You have comprehensible narratives. You have the spontaneity, the enduring spontaneity, humour and spite of the uh, English crowd, which is an extraordinary global TV product. And it's that combination that is, you know, that's the winner. The money from everybody else, I mean, they're just riding on the back of something else. You mentioned uh, distorting competition there. Do you mean that the competition is distorted between the English Premier League and foreign leagues or the English Premier League and the Championship and the lower leagues within the country? Well, it's also within the Premiership. I mean, Manchester City have won four of the last five titles. You know, if you take Leicester out of the equation, you know, which was extraordinary but is unlikely to be repeated anytime soon... It's basically three clubs at the moment that ever have any chance of winning the title. I mean, we have a change of guard because, of course, for the first sort of 15 years of the Premier League, it was, you know, Arsenal or Manchester United were the only people who won the league, apart from Blackburn in uh, 1995. And now we have a new kind of hierarchy. But again, it's pretty narrow 
set of competition. I mean, the paradox, of course, is that while the actual league title is pretty uncompetitive, uh, on a game-by-game basis, the Premier League, uh, and this again is a kind of reason for its global success, is highly competitive. Anyone can sort of beat anyone on their day, and most matches will be engaging and entertaining. I mean, I spoke to the man in charge of the Manchester United Official Supporters Club, Lagos, Nigeria branch. I said to him, What's it? what is it about the Premier League? He said, well, you know, people often, certainly overseas, they're consuming the league as a whole, not just an individual club. He said, well, you know, I love to watch El Clasico between Real Madrid and Barcelona, of course. But like, if it's Catafe versus, I don't know, Celta Vigo, towards the bottom end. It's like, I really can't be bothered. But with the Premier League, you know, it's not just Manchester United, Manchester City I'm watching because Crystal Palace versus Brighton can be a great game. Burnley versus West Brom can be a great game. I mean, the other way in which the Premier League, it's not so much competition, but if you like the negative consequences of its success, I think this is a really interesting geographical issue, is what it's done to African football. So. You know, somewhere between 350 and 500 million people are watching the Premier League in Africa. You know, all the marketing data, all the social media data suggests that the audience is absolutely gigantic. And certainly from my time in Africa, I can confirm that absolutely nothing compares to the Premier League in popular culture in across Africa. And this began... 20 years ago when satellite television arrived. And we've got to a situation 20 years later where domestic football in much of sub-Saharan Africa has been completely devastated by people's, the transfer of affection above all to European football and above all to the Premier League. And I imagine players as well, David. Yeah, you've had a big transfer of players from Africa to not just the Premier League. I mean, I would say that's to Europe more widely, but also, you know, there are significant numbers of Africans now playing in North America. There are very large numbers of Africans playing across Asia, which is a kind of measure of how screwed up African domestic football is, is that there's more money, there's better money and more secure conditions playing in Bangladesh than there is, say, in Nigeria, which is just a sort of extraordinary uh, economic situation to have got ourselves into. And certainly when the best and even the mediocre are playing overseas, the quality of the domestic product is in huge decline. You know, like in Somalia, they've just stopped scheduling games when uh, the Premier League is on. They play at different times. They wait for the Premier League to announce their TV schedule and then they create their own schedule. You know, even the biggest games that, you know, 20, 25 years ago would have attracted crowds of 70, 80, 100,000. You know, in Nigeria, a big game between two big teams in the 1990s, you know, you would have had 80,000 people and a really interesting fan culture. You would have had away fans. You had a really interesting domestic media culture, rich and interesting covering it. And that has just completely dissipated. And the, the tragedy of it is, that for all of the sales of players, African football is not getting any richer. Domestic football, you know, one argument would have been, okay, you sell all of these players, you know, but that brings money into the game locally that you can invest, right, and maintain the flow of talent 
But that doesn't happen because most African players are not coming up through professional league football. They're in private um, academies and the money is basically staying in other people's pockets. And then it works. The problem is also in the other direction is that, okay, one could imagine a situation or one could make the argument that all of these players who are earning amazing money and getting incredible experience would then come back to Africa and, um, you know, infuse the domestic game, the football federation with the skills and experience that they've garnered around the world. But again, this is not the case, partly because the people who run African football are frightened of them, so they won't let them in. Um, you know, Didier Drogba has had an endless struggle trying to get elected in the uh, Cote d'Ivoire Football Federation and hasn't made it. It's interesting that Samuel Eto has finally made it to the top of the Cameroonian Football Federation, but that is very rare for that to happen. And it's the same in terms of coaching to a great extent. So Africa has been seriously underdeveloped by the globalization of football with this massive drain of talent and above all affection. It's like, how do you compete when you can watch Manchester City versus Chelsea with 17 cameras covering it? And the alternative at home is, you know, the coverage on Supersport, you know, with literally two cameras, right? One that's just going back and forth end to end and one with like a guy basically with a camera on his shoulder running up and down the touchline. It's an impossible situation. So I I actually think I would go as far to say that the Premier League owes African football. I am cautious about using the word reparation, given the seriousness of the concept of reparations and um, the Atlantic slave trade. But I actually do think the Premier League owes an enormous set of debts to African football, which, as I say, it wasn't in great shape before, but it has been massively undermined over the last 25 years. It does sound like the English Premier League is all-powerful, all-consuming, as you say. There are also problems with English players in academies coming up and through and into the first team. Is that right? I read a statistic that less than 1% of English academy players make it into their, their first teams. I mean, this is true of professional football anywhere. I don't think that English uh, academies are any more cruel than any others. I mean, the system of training and employment in global football is, you know, it's pretty unusual. There really is a very limited number of slots available. There is enormous demand to try and get one of those spots. Um, So, yeah, the academies... I mean, all academies, you know, the number of people who actually make it is going to be minuscule. And there the issue is, okay, so what happens to the other 99%? How are they being treated? How are they being prepared for, basically for failure in a uh, culture and environment that is ruthlessly focused on success? I mean, that's a very difficult uh, game to play. I mean, the reports that I'm hearing is that it's better than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago, when I think I would say the uh, educational ethic of English football was close to cruel and barbaric and without any kind of real attention to the emotional, social needs of trainees. People were just, it's not like there was a golden era uh, back in the past. What I see is that, Club academies are making more effort to provide a parallel educational 
career for trainees with a view to them working in football or sport or leisure uh, at some level, and that there is um, a bit more attention being given to the emotional and mental well-being of young people who are going through this process. But I, th- I suspect we've got a long way to go. And I don't think there's anything that can be done about it. It's like if you have a cultural product that is based on supreme excellence at the pinnacle, you know, because that's why it's worth all this money and that's why it looks as good as it does, et cetera, et cetera. And you need, you know, like for training purposes, you have to have a squad of kind of 25, 30 because you've got to be able to play football amongst yourselves. It's not like you could reduce the num- the squad and therefore the number of, if you like, casualties on the way. I find it it's almost, it's just inevitable. So the real focus needs to be on how how clubs are dealing with people who are not making it. And as I've said, I think practice is variable. There's some really good practice. There's still some bad practice. It's better than it was in the past. We have a long way to go. We've talked a lot about the global flow of finance and then people and players. Um, How does football shape local places? Does it still shape local places, local neighbourhoods? I mean, I think in England at any rate, where local government, local identities and local institutions have either been homogenised or marginalised to a great extent, football clubs actually remain the most potent and most important symbols of neighbourhood and urban identities that we have. I just don't think anything comes close. It's like Norwich, you know, where do people go to feel like they're from knowledge? The sure as hell not going to the cathedral, you know, and like most people are not going to the farmer's market. You know, Norwich City Football Club is what is, you know, provides the uh, the basic, you know, network of ideas and identities to feel like you're Norwich. So I think it's incredibly important. And you can see when football clubs occasionally go bust and look like they're about to disappear, the level of grassroots energy that can be mobilized around saving them i'm thinking of berry most recently is really extraordinary there aren't many things that get people in england so mobilized so i think they're incredibly important you know we don't gather much anymore we're not in big institutions anymore we don't work in big factories we don't gather in big religious services to a great extent. We live in England in an increasingly unequal society where in public space, we're all separated. You know, we're educated, educating ourselves separately, living separately in social, social class terms and ethnic terms. And of course, we're also living by ourselves more. I mean, I still find it extraordinary that 40% of adult households are a single person. There is an enormous a lot of alienation, anomie, uh, and loneliness and separation in this uh, in this world. And football clubs and going to football is one of the rare places that offers an alternative to that. So I think that's an incredibly potent thing. I mean, other sports sort of offer it as well, but you know, nothing comes close. And I mean, that's part of the story. I think of the last 30, 40 years of football is its hegemony over all other sports. I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing that we have a kind of really almost a monoculture of cultural coverage of sport. And of course, you know, occasionally the England rugby team or the England cricket team, you know, will function in a similar 
kind of fashion of imagined community. But the day-to-day rhythm of life in uh, in England, just like nothing compares to football. So that sort of, yeah, made it, yeah, all the more kind of significant and potent in generating these local identities. One of my pleasures is to, you know, go to football in kind of smaller grounds and smaller towns around uh, England. And of course, football's the same everywhere, but everywhere there are these sort of odd and unusual and interesting idiosyncrasies. Exactly. And it retains that, you know, Bristol Rovers remains pretty much the only place that you can go in English football where the air smells of turnips due to the sheer volume of uh, Cornish pasties being made. You're not getting turnips in your standard meat pie in the rest of the football league. But in Bristol, it smells of turnips. And like to catch that smell, you know, on a Tuesday night in November, um, yeah, that's great. That's Bristol all over it i mean and there are a thousand examples of that and i think a lot of people you know that's that's important for a lot of folks it's a very evocative image um what do you see for the future of football i know that's quite a broad question but um will it continue to commercialize uh, will the women's game grow will it continue to be global sport so i think the first thing to say is Like everything else on this planet, football has to deal with the climate crisis. There are all sorts of scenarios in which no one will be playing football 50 years from now. I'm quite serious about this. The uh, climate crisis impacts on everything and it impacts on every sport and football is absolutely going to be impacted by it across the world. You know, how are people going to play outdoors during the day in Africa in 2050 when ambient temperatures are kind of regularly over 40 degrees centigrade? You know, this is a problem that will be happening all over the world, be happening in England. You know, you can't be playing regularly in over 35 degrees centigrade. And when you then start adding in humidity and bulb temperature issues, wow, this is a big problem all over the world. There's going to be a big problem for football um, with extreme weather. You know, we regularly lose in England a big part of the grassroots um, season to flooding, extreme rain. We're looking at more of that. I mean, Storm Eunice late 2021 saw eight lower league clubs completely flooded out. Work that I've done looking at uh, projections for flooding and sea level rises in England suggests that by 2050, one quarter of professional league uh, stadiums will either be uh, at risk of annual major flooding or actually just be underwater. I mean, Scunthorpe and Grimsby Town better think about playing water polo unless something pretty radical happens. And then you're talking, you know, extreme weather in terms of winds and typhoons and hurricanes. This is going to have a major impact. Then um, the uh, the Hague's team, ADO Den Haag, uh, saw the top of their stadium blown off by Storm Eunice last, um, last year. And this is going to happen around the world. So the number one issue, actually, as it is for everything and everybody on this planet, never mind just football, is how are you going to cope with and mitigate the climate crisis? And what the hell are you going to do about it? What contribution do you have to make? So I think that's big picture. That's that's number one. Do I think the women's game will grow? Absolutely. I mean, that's the future of football. That's the future. You know, I'm less interested in how much richer Real Madrid's men's team can get 
than the kind of enormous social and cultural consequences of the global game, which has been saturated in images and icons and the language of masculinity for 150 years. Finally, the other half of humanity gets, gets let in. And that's really, I am not, I, this is not to be underestimated. I think this is an absolutely huge cultural phenomenon. I mean, given everything we've already said about the uh, cultural significance of football in the 21st century, I think this is an extraordinary transformation. Is the women's game going to make as much money as the men's game? Is there going to be equivalents? I mean, I don't know. I don't think they're actually useful and interesting questions. It's like, how does it change our conceptions of masculinity and femininity? How does it change the way the game, you know, talks about these things and represents these things? And how does that filter out into wider society? Those are really interesting questions. And I think the growth of the women's game is going to be consistently posing. So that's really exciting. In terms of will it become more commercial? I mean, like, how much more commercial can it be? You know, how many more surfaces can sponsorship be laid upon? Like, we're at peak commercialization. What what more can they do? You know, put more adverts on shorts, put it more on socks. I mean, everything's for sale at the moment. So I'm not sure, actually, it can be commercialized in that sense anymore. I mean, the audience could still grow. Sure, there's that, that, but like actually commercializing more? I don't know. What would that, what would that, I'm not even sure what that would look like. I mean, American sports, you know, which in some ways you might say are, are actually in some ways less commercialized. I mean, you know, you still have a college draft over there, which is not a kind of commercial mechanism. You still don't have advertising on shirts, interestingly, in the US. And above all, you know, the billionaires there have managed to sort out their collective action problems and have collective salary caps and luxury taxes for people who exceed them, which brings a modicum of restraint to uh, the madness and the losses of professional sport. So, I mean, in a way, I think that might be a more likely future for, um, for football. Finally, um, going back to what you mentioned about extreme heat a moment ago um, and a nod to Qatar, the World Cup is coming up this year. Is it significant that this is the first tournament in the region outside Europe, outside the Americas? And could you elaborate on some of the uh, criticisms that surround the tournament? Sure. I mean, Qatar is a World Cup like no other. It's going to be in November. We've not had a winter Northern Hemisphere World Cup before. And that changes the dynamics of the game, where it sits in the season, most of the football season in Europe and other parts of the world. We've never had that before. So I like in sporting terms, I think that will bring some interesting and unusual consequences. It's also the first, as you say, not just World Cup, but major mega sporting mega events be held in the Middle East. And I thought, you know, when Qatar was awarded this, and I still think this, that that's basically a really good thing. You know, if football, if we're serious about having some expressions of and celebrations of a cosmopolitan humanity, like it needs to go everywhere. And the Middle East really loves football. Oh, my. From North Africa, you know, from Morocco through to um, Iran and Iraq, football is, is emperor in uh, in those zones and it's a real authentic and interesting and complex and multi-layered football culture so brilliant that's a really good thing 
It's also going to be a World Cup like no other. And this reflects wider trends in football, is that it will be the biggest and most expensive World Cup and a World Cup that has actually been put at the centre of economic, a programme of economic and urban transformation. And of course, we've had that in the Olympics before. You know, 1988 saw the Koreans completely rebuild Seoul around the Olympics. Uh, the same is true of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. You can make that claim also for Beijing 2008. But no one's ever done that with the World Cup before. Qatar has rebuilt itself, you know, catalyzed and charged by the World Cup, and it is spending $250 billion, and that is more than every World Cup and every Olympic Games ever all put together. Um, and this reflects, you know, football has become much more, you know, just a much bigger economic sector. I mean, it's worth remembering the Premier League in 1992, you know, its annual turnover was like less than $100 million for the whole of the Premier League. Right. That's now, you know, what Bournemouth are making in a year. The uh, the whole uh, football industry in Europe is probably now in the region of 50 billion a year, maybe more. Doesn't probably include betting and uh, sportswear. And that's bigger than the European publishing industry. So that's kind of, yeah, the economics from being actually a bit of a cottage industry and not a big business at all. Football is now actually so Qatar is in tune with that. But the kind of the, the key thing about Qatar, and again, this is they are so not alone in this, is that the last 20 years has seen the most extraordinary colonization of global football by political forces, by states, by um, individual uh, politicians, by political parties. You know, China has made, under Xi Jinping, you know, um, has made football an official development target that they win uh, the right to host the World Cup, that they qualify it and they win it by 2050. And this is official state policy, you know, and not just a joke. I mean, they're actually doing something about it. In Argentina, they actually nationalised TV football rights. They actually just nationalised them. They said, this is such an important public good that we are going to nationalise it and make it free on television. I mean, of course, there were all sorts of political agendas around that. You know, in Myanmar, the junta had to think about buying Manchester United and then thought maybe that's not a great look when we've got a flood disaster on. But then they corralled the entire business class to support teams and create the Myanmar Premier League. You know, so these interventions and then in terms of, you know, global profile, my God, you know, uh, Azerbaijan is spending hundreds of millions of pounds uh, advertising itself and its national oil company um, on football shirts. Saudi Arabia uh, and UAE have a huge program of investment in global football for essentially political ends. So Qatar, in that regard, is just the pinnacle of a much bigger transformation in football. And, you know, for Qatar... The World Cup and football in general, is it's not incidental, it's not a minor element of its international and foreign policy. It is absolutely central to it. It's absolutely central to it, you know, because how do you survive if you're a small state, uh, a pimple on the backside of Saudi Arabia with Iraq and Iran, you know, just to the north of you in a super unstable area and a population of 2.3 million of whom only 300,000 are citizens? 
So you need visibility. I mean, first of all, you need a military protector. And the Qataris, you know, built the world's biggest air base and gave it to the Americans. Um, so that covers that, that covers that base. But you need visibility. And like, how do you get visibility in this world? Global sport. Exactly. It's just incomparable. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Of course, this is not like entirely new because in 1930, a small unknown country of about 3 million people hosted the World Cup to let everybody know who they were. And in that case, it was Uruguay. And here we are, you know, almost a century later, and we're really not a million miles away from that situation. So in some ways, there's nothing new under the sun. So the Qataris, yeah, this is absolutely central to their, um, you know, as they perceive it, kind of state survival, let alone uh, development. It's going to be a very controversial World Cup, and rightly so, because there are many, many controversial things about it. It's partly very controversial because whereas the Chinese, the Beijing 2022 uh, Winter Olympics or the Russian World Cup in 2018 were also deeply, deeply controversial, there were many terrible things about both of them. You know, in Russia, gigantic levels of corruption, systematic attacks on LGBT people, particularly in the sporting world, use of virtual North Korean slave labor to build stadiums, invasion of just Crimea and the Donbass at that point. All of those things going on, you know, and Russian football itself is, you know, my God, a blasted heath of the most awful neo-Nazi and racist football ultras actively encouraged and supported by the state on many occasions. And like Russia and China just got a complete buy. And that's partly because, you know, who can go and report? Reporting in Russia and China is no joke. Qatar, to its credit, is relatively open. You can go to Qatar and be a journalist and you might get hassled, but the opera, it's so much easier to operate. And so... Qatar has been under scrutiny, and rightly so, but also because the Qataris actually care what the rest of the world think. I mean, the Russians and the Chinese, sure, you can say to the Chinese, like, you're holding a cosmopolitan festival of humanity through sport while you're conducting a genocide in Xinjiang. Mm, That's not a good look. And the Chinese basically say, we don't care what you think. We don't think it's a genocide. See you later. And the Russians like, you don't like it? We don't care. Qatar cares because that, it, you know, making friends and being visible is what they're about. So you've actually got a point of pressure on the Qatari regime through this in a way that you don't in the examples of China and the Chinese Winter Olympics and the Russian World Cup. Um, why is it super controversial? So the number one issue, as everybody knows, is working conditions uh, and the experience of the near one million helots who have toiled in extraordinary conditions, not only to build World Cup stadiums, but of course all of the infrastructure of this 250 billion operation. Conditions, certainly when things started in when they won the bid and for the first few years were truly appalling. Appalling because the system that is used uh, for migration, the kafala system, is so incredibly unequal and unfair, where employers are responsible for the migratory status of the people they bring in. But it's a kind of medieval bound like a surf to a lord model where you can't change job, you can't leave the country, you can't organise a trade union, you can't do anything without permission 
of the uh, person employing you, which, of course, in an already unequal relationship just makes it completely impossible. Add to that illegal recruitment methods where people are arriving with thousands of dollars worth of debt from Bhutan or Nepal because of an agent that has illegally charged them for basically getting the job. Terrible, terrible conditions in terms of, you know, regularity of pay, working conditions, working in heat. I mean, one could go on and on and on. So it's been a nightmare. What's worth remembering is this is exactly what's going on in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, right? This is how it works across the Gulf. And secondly, the kafala system, although it has elements of uh, Islamic jurisprudence in its conception, is basically an invention of the British Empire. Because remember, Qatar is a dependency of the British Empire until 1971. And the Brits have a very small bureaucratic presence, but a great need for migrant labor as oil and gas come online. And they um, they basically say to the Qataris, you sort it out. You be personally responsible. you know. And um, the same kind of racial hierarchies that the British Empire invented are reproduced in the way that the migration system works. So anyway, that's sort of just worth bearing in mind. So it's been, you know, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, a bunch of other organisations, the International Trade Union Movement have rightly been having a real old go at Qatar. And a lot of there's a lot of claims out there about the number of migrant workers who have died over this period. And I think as important, in a way, the number who have been injured, a lot of, you know, a lot of life transforming injuries and, you know, just a huge record of failure to pay, bad conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So that's obviously hugely controversial. What I think is interesting is that because of the relative openness of Qatar, because the Qataris actually care, and because the human rights operations have worked well with the trade union movement, is that there has been change. Qatar, for all the limitations of what's replaced it, has ended the kafala system and introduced a state-run bureaucratic migration system. I mean, it's unequal, it's unfair, and it's unjust, but it's in a completely different department to what we were looking at before. There is also a minimum wage and the beginnings of a regulatory and inspection system. Because, of course, that's the thing. You can have a minimum wage all you like, but if no one's enforcing it, then that's no good. And Qatar has just begun to build the state capacity to do that. So I think the Qataris, it's interesting. You know, one of the arguments you get in global sport is if you expire, if uh, an authoritarian or a closed society um, hosts one of these events, it is forced to engage with international norms and international organizations, which gives you leverage. Most of the time, this never happens, as I've said. But here for once actually is an example of that. Of course, the the thing's not complete in any way whatsoever. You know, reports continue to come in of poor work conditions, failure to pay, etc. And Amnesty are rightly calling for FIFA and Qatar to put up a billion dollar fund to cover all of the debts and back pay that workers have unjustly uh, incurred. And I think absolutely, like you've already spent 250 billion. This is less than half a percent. Come on. You know, the white pay up. So that's all hugely controversial. There's an environment dimension. Uh, I mean, again, another paradox. On the one hand, Qatar 2022 has the most systematic environment policy uh, and carbon offset policy of any World Cup hitherto. 
I mean, you know, like in Russia, they had an environment policy, like really not worth the paper it's written on. Nobody believed it, like laughable. Whereas the Qataris have gone completely seven star on zero waste, solar power, etc. So you've got that on the one hand, and one must give kudos to Qatar for that. On the other hand, one's looking at it and going, this is a gigantic amount of hydrocarbon wealth being burnt in an insanely carbon-intense event in a part of the world that is heating faster and more intensely than almost anywhere else. This is completely insane. And both things are sort of true. So there's a paradox that we need to sort of get our head around that no one has quite got to. And then, of course, there is the um, there's controversy over the human rights issues, LGBTQ issues, the situation of women in Qatar, and how this will play out during the tournament. Some people have an issue with the alcohol issue. I myself actually think that might be one of the saving graces of Qatar 2022. I actually don't think it is a universal human right to go to football and get incredibly drunk. It's just not It's not how the rest of everybody in the world operates. That may be the dominant thing in male football in Europe and South America, but actually that's not necessarily how the rest of the world is. And, you know, having been, it was really interesting going to um, the uh, women's Euros in England this year. There are no drunk people. It was like full, very intense crowds, no drunk people. A bigger queue for the water fountain than for the um, for the uh, for the beer. A very different atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's going to be, you know, both sporting and sociologically, it's going to be a really interesting World Cup. Lots of paradoxes, controversies, um, and things to look forward to. Uh, David, I could have spoken to you all afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.